When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? The Gardener by E.F. Benson. Two friends of mine, Hugh Granger and his wife, had taken for a month of Christmas holiday the house in which we were to witness such strange manifestations. And when I received an invitation from them to spend a fortnight there, I returned them an enthusiastic affirmative. Well already did I know that pleasant heathery countryside, and most intimate was my acquaintance with the subtle hazards of its most charming golf links. Golf, I was given to understand, was to occupy the solid day for Hugh and me, so that Margaret should never be obliged to set her hand to the implements with which the game, so detestable to her, was conducted. I arrived there while yet the daylight lingered, and as my hosts were out, I took a ramble round the place. The house and garden stood on a plateau facing south. Below it were a couple of acres of pasture that sloped down to a vagrant stream crossed by a footbridge, by the side of which stood a thatched cottage with a vegetable patch surrounding it. A path ran close past this, across the pasture from a wicket gate in the garden, conducted you over the footbridge, and so, my remembered sense of geography told me, must constitute a shortcut to the links that lay not half a mile beyond. The cottage itself was clearly on the land of the little estate, and I at once supposed it to be the gardener's house. What went against so obvious and simple a theory was that it appeared to be untenanted. No wreath of smoke, though the evening was chilly, curled from its chimneys, and coming closer I fancied it had that air of waiting about it which we so often conjure into unused habitations. There it stood with no sign of life whatever about it, though ready, as its apparently perfect state of repair seemed to warrant, for fresh tenants to put the breath of life into it again. Its little garden, too, though the palings were neat and newly painted, told the same tale. The beds were untenanted and unweeded, and in the flower border by the front door was a row of chrysanthemums which had withered on their stems. But all this was but the impression of a moment, and I did not pause as I passed it, but crossed the footbridge and went on up the heathery slope that lay beyond. My geography was not at fault, for presently I saw the clubhouse just in front of me. Hugh, no doubt, would be just about coming in from his afternoon round, and so we would walk back together. On reaching the clubhouse, however, the steward told me that not five minutes before Mrs. Granger had called in her car for her husband and I therefore retraced my steps by the path along which I had already come. But I made a detour, as a golfer will, to walk up the fairway of the seventeenth and eighteenth holes just for the pleasure of recognition, and looked respectfully at the yawning sandpit which so inexorably guards the eighteenth green, wondering in what circumstances I should visit it next whether with a step complacent and superior, knowing that my ball reposed safely on the green beyond, or with the heavy footfall of one who knows that laborious delving lies before him. The light of the winter evening had faded fast, and when I crossed the footbridge on my return, the dusk had gathered. To my right, just beside the path, lay the cottage, the whitewashed walls of which gleamed whitely in the gloaming, and as I turned my glance back from it to the rather narrow plank which bridged the stream, I thought I caught out of the tail of my eye some light uh, from one of its windows, which thus disproved my theory that it was untenanted. But when I looked directly at it again, I saw that I was mistaken. Some reflection in the glass of the red lines of sunset in the west must have deceived me, for in the inclement twilight 
it looked more desolate than ever. Yet I lingered by the wicked gate in its low palings, for though all exterior evidence bore witness to its emptiness, some inexplicable feeling assured me, quite irrationally, that this was not so, and that there was somebody there. Certainly there was nobody visible, but, so this absurd idea informed me, he might be at the back of the cottage, concealed from me by the intervening structure, and still oddly, still unreasonably, it became a matter of importance to my mind to ascertain whether this was so or not. So clearly had my perception told me that the place was empty, and so firmly had some conviction assured me that it was tenanted. To cover my inquisitiveness, in case there was someone there, I could inquire whether this path was a shortcut to the house at which I was staying, and, rather rebelling at what I was doing, I went through the small garden and rapped at the door. There was no answer, and, after waiting for a response to a second summons and having tried the door and found it locked, I made the circuit of the house. Of course there was no one there and I told myself that I was just like a man who looks under his bed for a burglar and would be beyond measure astonished if he found one. My hosts were at the house when I arrived, and we spent a cheerful two hours before dinner in such desultory and eager conversation as is proper between friends who have not met for some time. Between Hugh Granger and his wife it is always impossible to light on a subject which does not vividly interest one or other of them, and golf politics, the needs of Russia, cooking, ghosts, the possible victory over Mount Everest, and the income tax were among the topics which we passionately discussed. With all these plates spinning, it was easy to whip up any one of them, and the subject of spooks generally was lighted upon again and again. "'Margaret is on a high road to madness,' remarked Hugh on one of these occasions, for she has been using planchettes. If you use planchette for six months, I'm told, most careful doctors will conscientiously certify you as insane. She got five months more before she goes to Bedlam. Does it work? I asked. Yes, it says most interesting things, said Margaret. It says things that have never entered my head. We'll try it tonight. Oh, not tonight, said Hugh. Let's have an evening off. Margaret disregarded this. It's no use asking planchette questions she went on, because there is in your mind some sort of answer to them. If I ask whether it'll be fine tomorrow, for instance, it is probably I, though indeed I don't mean to push, who makes the pencil say yes. And then it usually rains, remarked Hugh. Not always, don't interrupt. The interesting thing is to let the pencil write what it chooses. Very often it only makes loops and curves, though they may mean something and every now and then a word comes of the significance of which I have no idea whatever, so I clearly couldn't have suggested it. Yesterday evening, for instance, it wrote gardener over and over again. Now, what did that mean? The gardener here is a Methodist with a chin beard. Could it have meant him? Oh, oh it's time to dress. Please don't be late. My cook is so sensitive about the soup. We rose, and some connection of ideas about gardener linked itself up in my mind. Uh, by the way, what's that cottage in the field by the footbridge? I asked. Is that the gardener's cottage? Used to be, said Hugh, but the chin beer doesn't live there. In fact, nobody lives there. It's empty. If I was only here, I should put the chin beard into it and take the rent off his wages. Some people have no idea of economy. Why did you ask? I saw Margaret was looking at me rather attentively. Ah, curiosity, I said. Idle curiosity. I don't believe it was said she. But it was, I said. It was idle curiosity to know whether the house was inhabited. I passed it, going down to the clubhouse, and I felt sure it was empty, but coming back I felt so sure that there was someone there that I rapped on the door, and indeed walked round it. Hugh had preceded us upstairs as she lingered a little. And there was no one there, she asked. It's odd. I had just the same feeling as you about it. That explains Planchette writing Gardener over and over again, said I. You had the gardener's cottage on your mind. How ingenious, said Margaret. Hurry up and dress. A gleam of strong moonlight between my drawn curtains when I went up to bed that night led me to look out. 
My room faced the garden and the fields which I had traversed that afternoon, and all was vividly illuminated by the full moon. The thatched cottage, with its white walls close by the stream, was very distinct, and once more, I supposed, the reflection of the light on the glass of one of its windows made it appear that the room was lit within. It struck me as odd that twice that day this illusion should have been presented to me, but now a yet odder thing happened. Even as I looked, the light was extinguished. The morning it did not at all bear out the fine promise of the clear night, for when I woke the wind was squealing, and sheets of rain from the southwest were dashed against my panes. Golf was wholly out of the question, and though the violence of the storm abated a little in the afternoon, the rain dripped with a steady sullenness. But I wearied of indoors, and since the two others entirely refused to set foot outside, I went forth, mackintoshed, to get a breath of air. By the way of an object in my tramp, I took the road to the links in preference to the muddy shortcut through the fields, with the intention of engaging a couple of caddies for Hugh and myself next morning, and lingered a while over illustrated papers in the smoking-room. I must have read for longer than I knew, for a sudden beam of sunset light suddenly illuminated my page, and looking up I saw that the rain had ceased, and that evening was fast coming on. So, instead of taking the long detour by the road again, I set forth homewards by the path across the fields. That gleam of sunset was the last of the day, and once again, just as twenty-four hours ago, I crossed the footbridge in the gloaming. Till that moment, as far as I was aware, I had not thought at all about the cottage there, but now, in a flash, the light I had seen there last night suddenly extinguished recalled itself to my mind, and at the same moment I felt that invincible conviction that the cottage was tenanted. Simultaneously, in these swift processes of thought, I looked towards it, and saw, standing by the door, the figure of a man. In the dusk I could distinguish nothing of his face, if indeed it was turned to me, and only got the impression of a tallish fellow, thickly built, he opened the door, from which there came a dim light as of a lamp, entered, and shut it after him. So then my conviction was right, yet I had been distinctly told that the cottage was empty. Who, then, was he that entered, as if returning home? Once more, this time with a certain qualm of fear, I rapped on the door, intending to put some trivial questions and rapped again, this time more drastically, so that there could be no question that my summons was unheard. But still I got no reply, and finally I tried the handle of the door. It was locked. Then, with difficulty mastering an increasing terror, I made the circuit of the cottage, peering into each unshuttered window. All was dark within though but two minutes ago I had seen the gleam of light escape from the open door. Just because some chain of conjecture was beginning to form itself in my mind, I made no allusions to this odd adventure, and after dinner Margaret, amid protests from Hugh, got out the planchette, which had persisted in writing Gardner. My surmise was, of course, utterly fantastic, but I wanted to convey no suggestion of any sort to Margaret. For a long time the pencil skated over her paper, making loops and curves and peaks like a temperature chart, and she had begun to yawn and weary over her experiment before any coherent word emerged. And then, in the oddest way, her head nodded forward, and she seemed to have fallen asleep. Hugh looked up from his book and spoke in a whisper to me. She fell asleep the other night over it, he said. Margaret's eyes were closed and she breathed the long, quiet breaths of slumber, and then her hand began to move with a curious firmness. Right across the big sheet of paper went a level line of writing, and at the end her hand stopped with a jerk and she woke. She looked at the paper. Hello, she said. Ah, uh, one of you's been playing a trick on me. We assured her that this was not so, and she read what she had written.
Gardener, gardener, it ran. I am the gardener. I want to come in. I can't find her here. Oh, Lord, the gardener again, said Hugh. Looking up from the paper, I saw Margaret's eyes fixed on mine, and even before she spoke, I knew what her thought was. Did you come home by the empty cottage? she asked. Uh, yes. Why? Still empty? she said, in a low voice. Or, or anything else? I did not want to tell her just what I had seen, or what, at any rate, I thought I had seen. If there was going to be anything odd, anything worth observation, it was far better that our respective impressions should not fortify each other. I, I tapped again, uh, and there was no answer, I said. Presently there was a move to bed. Margaret initiated it, and after she had gone upstairs, Hugh and I went to the front door to interrogate the weather. Once more the moon shone in a clear sky, and we strolled out along the flagged path that fronted the house. Suddenly Hugh turned quickly and pointed to the angle of the house. "'Who on earth's that?' he said. "'Look, there! He's gone round the corner!' I had but the glimpse of a tallish man of heavy build. "'Didn't you see him?' asked Hugh. "'I'll just go round the house and find him.' I don't want anyone prowling around us at night. Wait here, will you, and if he comes round the other corner, ask him what his business is. Hugh had left me in our stroll, close by the front door, which was open, and there I waited until he should have made his circuit. He had hardly disappeared when I heard, quite distinctly, a rather quick but heavy footfall coming along the paved walk towards me from the opposite direction, but there was absolutely no one to be seen who made this sound of rapid walking. Closer and closer to me came the steps of the Invisible One, and then, with a shudder of horror, I felt somebody unseen push by me as I stood on the threshold. That shudder was not merely of the spirit, for the touch of him was that of ice on my hand. I tried to seize this impalpable intruder, but he slipped from me, and the next moment I heard his steps on the parquet of the floor inside. Some door within opened and shut, and I heard no more of him. Next moment Hugh came running round the corner of the house from which the sound of steps had approached. "'But where is he?' he asked. "'He wasn't twenty yards in front of me at all, big fellow.' "'I saw nobody,' I said. "'I heard his steps along the walk, but there was nothing to be seen.' "'And then?' asked Hugh. Uh, "'Whatever it was seemed to brush by me and go into the house,' said I. There had certainly been no sound of steps on the bare oak stairs, and we searched room after room through the ground floor of the house. The dining-room door and that of the smoking-room were locked. That into the drawing-room was open, and the only other door which could have furnished the impression of an opening and a shutting was that into the kitchen and the servants' quarters. Here again our quest was fruitless. Through pantry and scullery and boot-room and servants' hall we searched, but all was empty and quiet. Finally we came to the kitchen, which too was empty, but by the fire there was set a rocking-chair, and this was oscillating to and fro, as if someone lately sitting there had just quitted it. There it stood, gently rocking, and this seemed to convey the sense of a presence, invisible now, more than even the sight of him who surely had been sitting there could have done. I remember wanting to steady it and stop it, and yet my hand refused to go forth to it. What we had seen, and in especial what we had not seen, would have been sufficient to furnish most people with a broken night, and assuredly I was not among the strong-minded exceptions. Long I lay, wide-eyed and open-eared, and when at last I dozed, I was plucked from the borderland of sleep by the sound, muffled, but unmistakable, of someone moving about in the house. It occurred to me that the steps might be those of Hugh conducting a lonely exploration, but even while I wondered, a tap came at the door of the communication between our rooms, and, in answer to my response, it appeared that he had come to see whether it was I thus uneasily wandering. Even as we spoke, the step passed my door, and the stairs leading to the floor above creaked to its ascent. 
Next moment it sounded directly above our heads in some attics in the roof. Those aren't the servants' bedrooms, said Hugh. No one sleeps there. Let's look once more. It must be somebody. With lit candles we made our stealthy way upstairs, and just when we were at the top of the flight, Hugh, a step ahead of me, uttered a sharp exclamation. But something's passing by me, he said, and he clutched at the empty air. Even as he spoke, I experienced the same sensation, and the moment afterwards the stairs below us creaked again as the unseen passed down. All night long that sound of steps moved about the passages as if someone was searching the house. And as I lay and listened, that message which had come through the pencil of the planchette to Margaret's fingers occurred to me. I want to come in. I cannot find her here. Indeed, someone had come in, and was sedulous in his search. He was the gardener, it would seem. But what gardener was this invisible seeker, and for whom did he seek? Even as when some bodily pain ceases, it's difficult to recall with any vividness what the pain was like. So, next morning, as I dressed, I found myself vainly trying to recapture the horror of the spirit which had accompanied these nocturnal adventures. I remembered that something within me had sickened as I watched the movements of the rocking chair the night before, and as I heard the steps along the paved way outside, and by that invisible presence against me knew that someone had entered the house. But now, in the sane and tranquil morning, and all day under the serene winter sun, I could not realise what it had been. The presence, like a bodily pain, had to be there for the realisation of it, and all day it was absent. Hugh felt the same. He was even disposed to be humorous on the subject. Well, he's had a good look, he said, whoever he is and whomever he was looking for. By the way, not a word to Margaret, please. She heard nothing of these perambulations, nor of the entry of, of whatever it was. Not gardener, anyhow. Who ever heard of a gardener spending his time walking about the house? If there were steps all over the potato patch, I might have been with you. Margaret had arranged to drive over to have tea with some friends of hers that afternoon, and in consequence Hugh and I refreshed ourselves at the clubhouse after our game. And it was already dusk, when, for the third day in succession, I passed homewards by the whitewashed cottage. But tonight I had no sense of it being subtly occupied. It stood mournfully desolate, as is the way of untenanted houses, and no light nor semblance of such gleamed from its windows. Hugh, to whom I had told the odd impressions I had received there, gave them a reception as flippant as that which he had accorded to those memories of the night, and he was still being humorous about them when we came to the door of the house. "'A psychic disturbance, old boy,' he said, like a cold in the head. "Hello, door's locked.' He rang and rapped, and from inside came the noise of a turned key and withdrawn bolts. "'What's the door locked for?' he asked his servants who opened it. The man shifted from one foot to the other. The bell rang half an hour ago, sir, he said, and, and when I came to answer it, there was a man standing outside and... Well, asked Hugh, I, I didn't like the looks of him, sir, he said, and I asked him his business. He didn't say anything. And then he must have gone pretty smartly away, for I never saw him go. Where did he seem to go? asked Hugh, glancing at me. I, I can't rightly say, sir. He, he didn't seem to go at all. Something seemed to brush by me. That'll do, said Hugh, rather sharply. Margaret had not come in from her visit, but when, soon after, the crunch of the motor wheels was heard, Hugh reiterated his wish that nothing should be said to her about the impressions which now apparently a third person shared with us. She came in with a flush of excitement on her face. "'Never laugh at my planchette again,' she said. "'I've heard the most extraordinary story from Maud Ashfield. "'Horrible, but so frightfully interesting.' "'Out with it,' said Hugh. "'Well, there was a gardener here,' she said. "'He used to live in that little cottage by the footbridge, "'and when the family were up in London, "'he and his wife used to be caretakers and live here.' "'Hugh's glance and mine met. "'Then he turned away. 
I knew as certainly as if I was in his mind that his thoughts were identical with my own. He married a wife much younger than himself, continued Margaret, and gradually he became frightfully jealous of her. And one day, in a fit of passion, he strangled her with his own hands. A little while after, someone came to the cottage and found him sobbing over her, trying to restore her. They went for the police, but before they came, he cut his own throat. Isn't it all horrible? But, but suddenly it's rather curious. The planchette said, Gardener, I am the gardener. I want to come in. I can't find her here. You see, I knew nothing about it. I shall do planchette again tonight. Oh, dear me, the post goes in half an hour, and I have a whole budget to send. But respect my planchette for the future, Hughie. We talked the situation out when she had gone, but Hugh, unwillingly convinced, and yet unwilling to admit that something more than coincidence lay behind that planchette nonsense, still insisted that Margaret should be told nothing of what we had heard and seen in the house last night, and of the strange visitor who, again, this evening, so we must conclude, had made his entry. She'll be frightened, he said, and she'll begin imagining things. As for the planchette, as likely or not, it'll do nothing but scribble and make loops. What's that? Yes, uh, come in. There had come from somewhere in the room one sharp, peremptory rap. I did not think it came from the door, but Hugh, when no response replied to his words of admittance, jumped up and opened it. He took a few steps into the hall outside and returned. Uh, didn't you hear it? he asked. Uh, certainly. No one there? Not a soul. Hugh came back to the fireplace and rather irritably threw a cigarette, which he had just lit, into the fender. That was rather a nasty jar, he observed, and if you ask me whether I feel comfortable, I can tell you I never felt less comfortable in my life. I'm frightened, if you want to know, and I believe you are too. I hadn't the smallest intention of denying this, and he went on. We've got to keep a hand on ourselves, he said. There's nothing so infectious as fear, and Margaret mustn't catch it from us. But there's something more than our fear, you know. Something has got into the house, and we're up against it. I never believed in such things before. Let's face it for a minute. What is it, anyhow? If you want to know what I think it is, said I, I believe it to be the spirit of the man who strangled his wife and then cut his throat. But I don't see how it can hurt us. We're afraid of our own fear, really. But we're up against it, said Hugh, and what will it do? Good Lord, if I only knew what it would do, I shouldn't mind. It's the, the not knowing. Well, uh, it's time to dress. Margaret was in her highest spirits at dinner, knowing nothing of the manifestations of that presence which had taken place in the last twenty-four hours, she thought it absorbingly interesting that her planchette should have guessed, so ran her phrase, about the gardener, and from that topic she flitted to an equally interesting form of patience for three which her friend had showed her, promising to initiate us into it after dinner. This she did, and not knowing that we both above all things wanted to keep planchette at a distance, she was delighted with the success of her game. But suddenly she observed that the evening was burning rapidly away, and swept the cards together at the conclusion of a hand. Now, just half an hour of planchette, she said. Oh, uh, may we play one more hand, said Hugh. It's the best game I've seen for years. Uh, planchette will be dismally slow after this. Darling, if the gardener will only communicate again, it won't be slow, said she. But it is such drivel, said Hugh. How rude you are. Read your book, then. Margaret had already got out her machine and a sheet of paper when Hugh rose. Please, don't do it tonight, Margaret, he said. But why? You needn't attend. Well, I ask you not to, anyhow, said he. Margaret looked at him closely. Hughie, you've got something on your mind, she said. Out with it. I believe you're nervous. You think there's something queer about? What is it? I could see Hugh hesitating as to whether to tell her or not, and I gathered that he chose the chance of her planchette inanely scribbling. Go on, then, he said. Margaret hesitated. She clearly did not want to vex Hugh, but his insistence must have seemed to her most unreasonable. Well, just ten minutes, she said, and I promise not to think of gardeners. 
She had hardly laid her hand on the board when her head fell forward, and the machine began moving. I was sitting close to her, and as it rolled steadily along the paper, the writing became visible. I have come in, it ran, and I still can't find her. Are you hiding her? I will search the room where you are. What else was written, but still concealed underneath the planchette, I did not know, for at that moment a current of icy air swept round the room, and at the door, this time unmistakably, came a loud, peremptory knock. Hugh sprang to his feet. Margaret, wake up, he said. Something's coming. The door opened, and there moved in the figure of a man. He stood just within the door, his head bent forward, and he turned it from side to side, peering, it would seem, with eyes staring and infinitely sad into every corner of the room. Margaret! Margaret! cried Hugh again. But Margaret's eyes were open too. They were fixed on this dreadful visitor. Be quiet, Huey, she said below her breath, rising as she spoke. The ghost was now looking directly at her. Once the lips above the thick, rust-coloured beard moved, but no sound came forth. The mouth only moved and slavered. He raised his head, and horror upon horror, I saw that one side of his neck was laid open in a red, glistening gash. For how long that pause continued, when we all three stood stiff and frozen in some deadly inhibition to move or speak, I have no idea. I suppose that at the utmost it was a dozen seconds. Then the spectre turned and went out as it had come. We heard his steps pass along the parquetted floor. There was the sound of bolts withdrawn from the front door, and with a crash that shook the house, it slammed too. It's all over said Margaret. God have mercy on him. Now, the reader may put precisely what construction he pleases on this visitation from the dead. He need not, indeed, consider it to have been a visitation from the dead at all. But say that there had been impressed on the scene where this murder and suicide happened some sort of emotional record which, in certain circumstances, could translate itself into images visible and invisible. Waves of ether, or what not, may conceivably retain the impress of such scenes. They may be held, so to speak, in solution, ready to be precipitated. Or he may hold that the spirit of the dead man indeed made itself manifest, revisiting, in some sort of spiritual penance and remorse, the place where his crime was committed. Naturally, no materialist will entertain such an explanation for an instant, but then there is no one so obstinately unreasonable as the materialist. Beyond doubt, a dreadful deed was done there, and Margaret's last utterance is not inapplicable. Everybody dies, don't they? So that was a gardener by E.F. Benson. Um, I'm not really going to talk about E.F. Benson because we've done a number of old E.F.'s um, stories before, and we start, you know, his father was Archbishop of Canterbury and Bishop of Truro, hence the Cornish setting. He lived a leisured life, so his stories are all set in country house of people doing fishing and golfing and hunting and have nothing else to do. Uh, he was a comic writer, Map and Lucia. He's most famous for that now, but in his day was the spook stories that he did. But um, you see some of his comic stuff coming through in this. I don't really want to talk about him. Um, I want to talk about how I got the story. So the story is from a new anthology. I mean, it's been anthologized a number of times and this is called The Dead of Winter, and it was sent to me for nothing, so anybody sends me a book, I'm like, yes, please. Um, and um, Lily Evans, uh, working at Profile Books, sent me a press release and a free copy. Free copy. To you, it's £9.99, but I still think it's good value. 
and it's called The Dead of Winter, Ten Classic Tales for Chilling Nights. Now, the editor is Cecily Gayford. Now, Cecily, as it says here, studied um, English at the University of Oxford, no less, where she wrote her thesis on the golden age of detective stories in the 1930s and 40s. And she's a publishing director, and she's worked at Profile Books for 10 years, and this is their new edition. It's coming out for this winter. It contains stories from Lennox Robinson, M. Burridge, Ruth Rendell, E.F. Benson, Arthur Conan Doyle, H. Russell Wakefield, M.R. James, Margaret Irwin, Algernon Blackwood, and W.W. Jacobs. And I think all of those stories, all of those names will be familiar to listeners to this podcast because we've probably done we've done a lot of these uh, stories I'm going to run you through them Pair of Muddy Shoes by Lennox Robinson Irish writer done it uh, good good Smee by A.M. Burridge done it good Christmas Eve party story good A Bad Heart by Ruth Rendell we haven't done The Gardener by E.F. Benson we have, we've done other Ruth Rendell ones but The Gardener by E.F. Benson yes it's this The Case of Lady Sanex by Arthur Conan Doyle we haven't done Lucky's Grove by H. Russell Wakefield. We've done others of his, but not this. The Story of a Disappearance and an Appearance by M.I. James. We've done that one. The Book by Margaret Irwin. Done others of Margaret Irwin's, but not that one. The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood. Yes, we've done that one. And Jerry Bundler by W.W. Jacobs, uh, which we've um, done as well. I love that story. like the Kit Bag. Story of a Disappearance and an Appearance is a weird James story. This is good. Smee's really good. A pair of muddy shoes mm, is okay. Um, but so this series actually, this is one of a series. I think it's the first ghost stories one in the in the series uh, edited by Cecily Gayford uh, for Profile Books. So they have Murder in Midsummer, Murder Takes a Holiday, Murder at Christmas, Murder Under the Christmas Tree, Murder on Christmas Eve, Murder in Midwinter, Murder on a Winter's Night, Murder by the Seaside, Murder in a Heatwave. So there's a whole bunch of them, and they are classic stories. Now, funnily, in I'll read you, um, I quite like the blurb of it. <clears throat> I'm going to read it dramatically. In the dead of winter, the veil between worlds is as thin as ice. I like that. As the nights draw in, the veil between worlds thins, and all sorts of ghosts and ghouls come tumbling in, in the shadows, under the bed, in wind-whipped snowy landscape, and in rooms lit by guttering candles, the dead of winter are waiting for us, and their hearts are cold as I see what they did there. The dead of winter, in the dead of winter, it's what we say, isn't it? The dead of winter, i.e. the returned dead. Nice little play. From the mysterious occupants of an ancient tomb to the Christmas visitor who is troubled by violent dreams, these are ten ghost stories from the masters of the genre that will chill your blood and haunt your dreams through the darkest months of the year. So it's not um, it's not totally Christmas ghost stories, but it's winter go winter ghosts. A nice cover. So thank you very much to Lily for sending me that and profile books. And remember, you can. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a nice little collection. If you like this kind of story, then why not? You can order it from your local bookshop, I'm guessing. So there we are. In terms of, I'm not going to say much about EF, um, but um, in terms of the story itself, classic EF Benson, somebody's on a golfing holiday or staying with friends. This is what they're always doing. And then we have the, the big house. It's a big house, isn't it? It's got servants. It's got um, servants' hall, so it's not just a servant. There's a few of them. There's a scullery and a boot room, things like that. There's a top floor where nobody goes, apart from the ghost. And um, Hugh Gainford and his charming wife, who seem to golf. She's got a budget to put in, so she sounds like she's got a job. Not sure Hugh has. He seems to spend all his time golfing, as does our nameless narrator. Not me. I've got a name. But the, um, you know, the narrator of the story. So I was narrating the narrator. Um, it done in the first person. Done in the first person, past tense. This kind of, uh, not a frame story, so it wasn't one of these, I met a man who told me, oh, this happened to a friend of mine. So it's a direct reminiscence. So that is slightly more modern than the Victorian frame story, which is right for the um, the period. This is an Edwardian story, really. Uh, or, or, you know, yeah, yeah, early 20th century anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm still recovering from my cold, you know. It gives me a, a nasal quality, which I'm not sure I dislike. But um, so, yeah, in terms of the story, if you were going to make this into a TV or a film, I think it'd be quite good because it's basically a... Um, 
there's, it's more. It's not a three-hander. There, there are, you know, Margaret Gainford, Hugh Gainford, and narrator three. But there's also a bit parts. There's the servant, and then there's the ghost. So there's kind of five people. But um, you could you could kind of the the servant and the ghost could play the same person. I don't know why I'm thinking of dramatizing this. You just need an old house, posh old house, gas lamps. It could be done pretty effectively, I think. The thing about E.F. Benson is he's a comic writer and some of his ghost stories are quite comic and yet others are disturbing. He's, he doesn't have the... Um, I was listening to a, a radio um, programme about Robert Aikman's stories. It was a generation or so after the, after Benson. Um, and what Aikman and what I think Aikman has and what M.R. James has is the... Um, the unexplained, the eerie, like so. If we say eerie is agency, who who is doing this? Unknown agency. Who? What is this about? Um, and uh, they leave those unexplained. You know, we don't really know what's going on. Whereas um, E. F. Benson quite often ties up the story, and you, yes, yeah, so it's it is a classic gothic ghost story of a of a ghost that hangs around because it was wronged and it cannot. We we never hear that the ghost has been laid as they say um you know the ghost this haunting is going to continue i think in this house interestingly though think about it the gainfords seem to have lived there for a little while maybe i can't remember did he say and they've never had this uh, um, this experience before but in terms of the structure so we get introduced the first foreshadowing is him walking past the house and thinks there's somebody there and then lull and we have the chat and then we have the planchette and the gardener so you've linked foreshadowing one the gardener's cottage and the planchette but you know look it's obvious what's coming really then and then we have another lull where they go to the golf club and everything and margaret's going doing a budget and so normal world and we kind of know so in a sense although when you think about so stories we have suspense which is we're all sitting there we don't know what's going to happen and we have dramatic irony whereby we the listener the reader know what's going to happen but the characters don't so we watch their inevitable doom think of Oedipus Rex we know exactly what's happened there he doesn't and there is a little bit of it's not it is a, it isn't classic um, dramatic irony because we don't know exactly what's going to happen but it's so um, laid out that we can guess it and we can and we have that feeling of watching it unfold the dread coming i quite liked the fact that the ghost it doesn't speak itself that its words come through the planchette and it doesn't talk because i think if you have a talking ghost recently did the canterville ghost which was a humorous story the ghost talks in that one but i think it um it takes away the weirdness from the ghost. It, it just becomes a man who happens to be dead, trying to sort things out. And we have a little bit of gore. You remember later on in the horror genre, we went through a very gory period. We're still in it in some parts of it, but, you know, um, in the 80s, 90s and stuff, I mean, you think of uh, Clive Barker's Books of Blood, but also uh, Ch uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and Saw, and all, all of these things were all about the, the goriness of it all. Um, Whereas the classic ghost story wasn't particularly gory, but I think he's put this in is just to like the the cut the man's cut throat, <gasps> you know, just to add to that. So I don't think it's his best story, but there is some comfort. It's like um, the detective story, isn't it? What we're looking for these are cozy stories. We're looking for coziness, but a little thrill as well, and we wanted the same but slightly different. So we wanted to fulfil the shape of the genre. We we want the, you know we know what ghosts do. They come for revenge. They are held by wrongs that are, that are unrighted. You know he actually mentions um, this theory, which later became the stone tape theory. So so basically in in the and I was listening to who was talking about this. I was listening to a podcast about it. it might have been Mark Gatiss actually. And he was saying, or whoever it was, was saying, um, first of all, we, the, the stone tape theory is the most famous, and that is that the walls are like a recording device. And one interesting thing about the metaphors we use is they are very much of our time. So if you think of Freud, 
Freud's idea that um, tension builds up and has to be released by talking, the cathartic experience lets it all out. Phew, the pressure's relieved, everything's fine. Is a steam age, it's a hydraulics or a steam age thing. This is what steam engines do. They over, they blow, they need to be released, okay? And then we have um, cognitive psychology now, which kind of says, I think this is possibly fading, that the brain is a computer. Brain is not a computer. The brain is not a steam engine and it's not a computer. And it's true. So the stone tape theory came in in the age of um, analog tapes. And it was that, uh, you know, you could record sound onto these pieces of plastic by magnetism. And what if that could happen? And people had a, um, theories that it was the quartz crystals, certain types of rocks or granite or um, sandstone, because quartz, you know, everybody was excited about quartz watches and things like that. Quartz vibrates. And so, yeah, so the, the crystals in the stone acted in the same way as a tape, a completely um, understandable physical way. It was just the sounds and impressions were recorded in the same way that a tape is recorded. Now, this stone tape theory, which is still talked about, but I don't think, I think we've moved on in terms of metaphors. We don't use analog tape anymore, so it doesn't have the kind of um, immediacy and grip of that. But um, prior to that, there was this, and he mentions the ether, there was this um, um, theory that came from physics that what turned out to be not true, that the, um, the, the space, emptiness, is filled with the, the luminifer luminiferous ether. So this invisible substance that carried light, and now we know it's vacuum. Um, that's a, it's one thing. We don't, I say we don't know that. Our current theory is that. That's our current thing. But so the Victorians had this idea that there was this invisible fluid. And, it, and to talk about previous to that, mesmer, going back to the 1700s, the idea that magnetism was a fluid and hypnotism and mesmerism was the way this fluid was. So you see these metaphors of our of our, our, of, of our contemporaries, you know? And so... Um, before the stone tape, it was that the memories, impressions, psychic impressions were laid in the, in the ether. And this is what Benson alludes to at the end. Um, and we don't think that then. And then we thought it was a, a tape. And we probably don't. Some, well, some of us thought that. And we don't think it's a tape anymore. And moving forward, it makes me smile, Riley, that um, we talk about black matter and dark matter and dark energy. We have no idea what they are. And... It's just another theory, and it probably is going to be just as wrong as the luminiferous ether of our Victorian ancestors. So, you know, and and that's fine, because, you know, I'm quite a fan of the scientific process, as long as it remains a process. So it's an empirical, it's a, it's a, it looks at empirical evidence and tests hypotheses, and if it's wrong, it's discarded. And we may work with a hypothesis we think is right, and then evidence... Thomas Kuhn and his um, theories of scientific revolutions, you know, evidence accumulates and it is abandoned, usually when the people who held that theory die and we get a new theory and then more evidence comes. And, you know, as long as we are saying we don't know, we think it's this, we don't know, here's some evidence shows that we were wrong. Okay, we were wrong. Let's try something else. I think that process is fine. I think the danger is that um, people are human beings and they stick to the theory. So if you have made your career as a physicist with this or a psychologist or a surgeon or a doctor you believe in the theories of your time so in my field the dopamine theory of uh, schizophrenia and the um, serotonin theory of depression which are both um, are watery no watery not watertight leaky but you know a new theory will come up and the people who believe the old one will be retired so um, that's, how, that's how it happens. I don't know how we're going on to that, really. Talking about ghost stories? Oh, yeah, yeah, stone tape theory and stuff like that. Yeah, that it all makes sense now, doesn't it? So anyway, um, there we are. Remember, I've got my Etsy store. Now, some people talking about free books. Some people very kindly have been sending me books across the Atlantic, and I've been sending books across the Atlantic, and it's very, very, very expensive. So don't, you know, let's not do that. Um, and uh, so if you are in the UK, um, you go to my Etsy store, you can buy my books and I'll sign them for you and, and it's all doable. If you outside the UK, I can, we've got badges, pins, you know, 
lapel pins. I've got um, stickers. I've got postcards, merchandise. So I can definitely send that across the Atlantic or across the Pacific, across the Indian Ocean, across any, probably across the Arctic Ocean, actually. I won't go myself, but I can send those. So, you know, there is something for everybody in the Etsy store. Um, I would just, my I'm kind of doing a push on my Christmas Ghost Stories book which is more Christmas ghost stories by Tony Walker. You can actually order it from the dreaded Amazon, but you can get it from your local bookstore. And um, uh, as I say, if you're in the UK, you can buy it direct from me. Um, Yeah, Arctic. I'm doing Frankenstein at the moment. I have done long books in the past, and I've done them chapter-wise and released them as serials, and they kind of get a dedicated but small following. People don't really want, but there's something about it. People will only kind of latch onto it when it's the full deal. So Frankenstein's longish. It will take me a while to do it, but when it's done, I will release it as a piece, as a full book. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm filling my time when I get any time um, doing that. And of course, people say to me, "When's the next one of Unreal City coming out?" And and I'm like, "Well, it, one of these days." Um, I've got two jobs at the moment. I'm, I'm desperate to give them up but um, I was going to give one up and then I had a chat with um, my um, line manager and she said oh you're we don't want to lose you you're a great clinician and oh yeah a bit of flattery so I'm like oh okay I'll stay and then my other one is like uh, I'm definitely going but i would given them till the end of March which is you know, five months away um, and I'm thinking oh god I could use the core I could use the time but um, I feel bad I feel like I don't want to let people down. But the day will come when I'm not doing those jobs and I will um, then I'll record more stuff, um, God willing. All right. Hope you're all well. That's about it. We're just short of the hour, but it's no bad thing to have a shorter one. Okay. um, Winter Ghosts. Happy Winter Ghosts. Isn't that so? 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 Isn't that so?